Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pesaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Byron C. Clarke, who is the author of Fear, New Zealand's hostile underworld of extremists. Thanks for joining us, Byron. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, Byron, why fear and why, why the book and why the title? So the book came about because there really needed to be a book on this topic. Um, so I've had as a long-term goal writing a book on the far right in New Zealand. And after the occupation of Parliament grounds, it turned into a short-term goal because I found there was a bit of necessity for it. You know, thankfully, uh commercial publisher thought the same and gave me a contract to write this book. It's one of, it's actually been a couple of other books out recently on similar topics that I think really all complement each other. There's uh, Dylan Reeves' book, Fake Believe, about conspiracy theories, and more recently, um, Histories of Hate, which is a, a more academic book looking at the history of the far right in this country. And, and why uh, fear for the title? Why fear, yeah. So partly because one-word titles are very in right now, but the word fear in particular, describing both the fear that the far right is trying to create and trying to bring about in society, but also the fear that's driving this movement, this uh, fear of social change, fear of you know demographic changes, fear of increasing rights for women in the LGBTQIA community, this fear of people who have historically had power and privilege losing that power and how they are lashing out as a result of that. Byron, you've made reference to protests outside Parliament, I think it was last year. Was that event, what we witnessed, was was that event the uh, emergence of this uh, cohort of extremists from the underworld? How do you understand what happened outside Parliament? Yeah, so that's largely what I've aimed to do with the book. So the penultimate chapter is the protest outside Parliament, and everything leading up to that is either looking at who some of these groups and some of these individuals are, who the influencers are who have been encouraging people to adopt these ideas that saw them going on this protest, or in a couple of cases, looking a bit further back in history to understand the deep roots that some of these these ideas have in this country. So it's very much about how did we get here? How did we get to hundreds, possibly thousands of people occupying the grounds outside Parliament? And it was a really big moment for this country because it was all the people who had always been there 
in telegram groups and YouTube comment sections and some more nefarious parts of the internet. But we still have a tendency to think of what happens on the internet as not real. But it was all the people from behind the screens, you know, getting together, groups that often have a lot of infighting, actually putting some of their differences aside and all engaging in this mass civil disobedience. Now, the book follows numerous threads that have led to this moment. And one of them, I think, was quite interesting because I remember watching some of the uh, footage surrounding the protests and uh, some of the other, outside Parliament, that is, and some of the other protests that had taken place. And one face I, I recognised was that belonging to uh, Carl Chapman, whom I recognised from uh, many years as a I guess he could be described as a veteran of the far right in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Was he typical of the kinds of figures that emerged from the underground? Who else was involved? What were the important uh, or who were the important figures in the groups that took part? Yeah, so so Carl Chapman, for, for those less familiar, was the leader of the National Front and explicitly sort of white supremacist neo-Nazi group in the 90s and 2000s, uh, later led a split from that called the right-wing resistance. Went a bit quiet for a while, but then popped up again more recently, getting really involved in a lot of anti-vaccine conspiracy stuff and, you know, building some connections there. So he's still very active. Now he led a protest at outside our central library here in Christchurch just recently protesting against drag queen story time. So he's moving on to that issue now. But yeah, he's someone who's inserted himself. Others who are significant players are Calvin Elp and his partner Hannah Spera, who host the conspiratorial online video show Counterspin Media and played a huge role in promoting, organising that protest at Parliament and also encouraging protesters on the ground to take things in a certain way, move things in a certain way. In addition to them, there have been groups like the Freedom and Rights Coalition, which really is a, is a front group for the Evangelical Destiny Church. They have other sort of front groups as well, including a political party that's going to be standing in the election this year, but probably not getting very far in that regard. But they were making up a large portion of the people at the protest as well. Then there are others like the anti-vaccine group Voices for Freedom, which came out of uh, another conspiratorial political party that contested the last election, pushing uh, conspiracy about the Great Reset and the United Nations Agenda 2030 and so on and so forth. Um, and then there were the you know smaller, more fringe and more extreme groups like the white supremacist group Action Zealandia, who did have a presence at the protest as well, and individuals like uh, Phil Arps, the first person who was arrested for sharing the mosque shooting footage, which is an objectionable publication in this country. He uh, didn't quite make it to Wellington. He was arrested in Picton on the other side of the strait after he told someone he was on his way to a, a public execution. So a real uh, circus of colourful characters outside Parliament um, a year ago. Byron, you mentioned Counterspin Media. Uh, is that the, the group that's financed by Steve Bannon? Well, we don't know for certain if they're financed by Bannon. They certainly have a relationship with a international organization known as the New Federal State of China. And this was started by Bannon and the uh, dissident Chinese billionaire uh, Guo Wenguei. And the, the pair of them ran a number of media companies that interconnected a bit and were notable for being significant spreaders of disinformation around COVID-19, QAnon-style conspiracy theories, um, and you know, a lot of misinformation as well about uh, the Communist Party of China and nothing wrong with criticizing the Communist Party of China, but much of what they were pushing was not factually accurate. And 
this group is primarily US-based, but has branches in a number of different countries, uh, which are each known as uh, Himalaya Farms. And so the New Zealand group, known as Himalaya New Zealand, had approached Alp and Spira with uh, the offer of organising studio space for them to do this do this TV show, or online video show. And we know that that group, Himalaya New Zealand, also had some involvement with one of the political parties I, I mentioned before, Advance New Zealand, who were pushing conspiracy theories in the 2020 election. And they'd organised for one of the co-leaders to appear on Steve Bannon's war room. So again, we don't know if there's any money changing hands here, but there's certainly those those links there with Bannon's group and his organizations. And Bannon, of course, has very big ambitions that are global in nature and he does think a bit beyond the US. I don't think he thinks about New Zealand a lot, but you know, there's certainly certainly a bit of a connection there. Byron, we've already made reference to Carl Chapman, who about twenty years ago, I understand as the uh, level boss of uh, the National Front New Zealand helped to form a an alliance of sorts with the, I think it was the Australia First Party in Australia in a form of uh, trans-Tasman collaboration. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what contemporary forms of cooperation are happening between far-right groups and individuals in Aotearoa New Zealand and Australia. I'd say a significant one would be Action Zealandia, who, as I've said, is, is a more explicitly white supremacist and fascist group. And it's very hard to recruit people to an explicitly fascist group, particularly if you are conscious of security and you're trying not to have your identities revealed. So they're a very small group and they've orientated themselves more so than to a New Zealand audience, but to other groups overseas and tried to build these build these alliances with far-right groups in other countries, including, of course, Australia. And they've had Blair Cotterell on their podcast before. Uh, they'd wanted to get Thomas Sewell as well, uh, but he was arrested at the time and couldn't make it on the show because of that. And it looks as though some of their members have you know, been over to Australia and probably met with some of these groups and some of these individuals as well. So there's definitely some trans-Tasman links there. Byron, as we go to air, yesterday was the four-year anniversary of the massacre in Christchurch, which was perpetrated by an Australian. I suppose in Australia, if we look at the reaction from the far right, this is an event that's celebrated, venerated. Uh, There's been very little soul-searching done. How has the New Zealand far right responded to it? I guess with the more immediate threat of uh, the security apparatus uh, in response to the sort of things that we see Australians doing very regularly. So there's been mixed responses. Um, there's a few people who will publicly admit to being supportive of you know, what was done or, or celebrating it, although certainly in private, some of the more extreme groups will, will uh, admit to that. Even the ones who are somewhat celebrating it, they, they often see a negative side because it has brought more attention from, from the state onto the far right. They were very much ignored before then uh, with our security state still focusing very much on Islamic extremism and not the rising threat of, of far-right extremism, which if you look internationally, at least in you know, Western countries, is is the biggest terror threat right now. Whereas now I think there is more focus from you know, security intelligence service and so forth on the far-right. So some of them feel that it's put more scrutiny on them and scrutiny from the media and from anti-fascists as well. And they see that as a negative then there's a, a much wider group who 
you know, don't endorse the actions of, of the terrorist, but will spread conspiracy theories claiming that the terror attack was a false flag perpetuated or hoaxed by the government in order to take away guns or bring in hate speech laws or otherwise target, you know, conservatives. And often when people describe themselves as thus, the word conservatives doing a lot of heavy lifting there. So, the event is still a significant event for the far right in New Zealand, but we're not seeing that much in the way of celebration, but more more of this conspiracy theory around it being a false flag, which has led to the two hosts of Countessman Media going through court at the moment for objectionable publication charges, not for sharing the live stream footage unedited, but for sharing links to a documentary claiming it was a false flag, which makes use of all the live stream footage to bolster this false claim. So still a very significant part of the far right in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Byron, you discussed the role of social media in the distribution of disinformation and misinformation, especially, I guess, uh, sites like Facebook and YouTube. I've noticed you yourself uh, maintain a YouTube channel on which you publish your news and views. So I have two questions, I suppose. One is, can you talk a little bit more about how disinformation campaigns on these sorts of sites can have quite significant impact despite being produced by relatively small networks of people? That's one question. And the other is, how is your own uh, use of YouTube going? What, what, what have you learned from your own attempts to kind of combat this tide of disinformation and misinformation? Start with a bit of historical background. The far right has been online as long as there has been an online. There's an American sociologist who I cite in the book, Jesse Daniels, who's wrote a book in 2009 called uh, Cyber Racism. And she looks in there at how some of these groups were starting bulletin board servers back in the 80s. So, you know, you could dial somebody's number and download your um, low-resolution scans of uh, Mein Kampf or whatever, text files and things. So the far right's been online 40, 40 years almost at this point as they realized that the internet would be a way that they could bypass the gatekeeping of traditional media, TV, radio, newspapers, and so forth, and potentially reach more people. Um, they then went on to found uh, the forum Stormfront in 1995, which was still online right up until uh, 2017. These sites, though, first the original message boards and then forums like Stormfront and others, didn't really reach out to a lot of new people, though. I mean, unless you were already somebody who was interested in white supremacy, you probably wouldn't seek out these sites and become part of the community there. So people on Stormfront encouraged users to go out and spread their views on other parts of the internet where there were very few restrictions and moderation. So that included places like when it was launched, uh, 4chan's Politically Incorrect board, where you could have uncensored political discussion about any topic. What really influenced the spread of disinformation, though, was when we started to get social media powered by content recommendation algorithms. So these algorithms were developed to keep eyeballs on screens for as long as possible because the longer you keep somebody scrolling a feed or watching uh, YouTube videos and just whatever YouTube serves up next you know the more advertising you can serve them so it was within the business interest of these these companies to keep feeding people content that would keep them watching and it turns out that one way to do that is to serve up highly emotive content and content that will elicit a 
emotional response from people and maybe make them engage more, you know, leave comments and make video replies of their own that link back to it and that sort of thing. So what this led to is somebody could be watching a YouTube video from a relatively mainstream center-right personality, someone from Fox News or whatever, and then get served up something, you know, a little bit more extreme, a bit more fringe, and then start watching that person and get served up something more extreme still. And then some of these people would be then saying, oh, you can't get the real truth here because YouTube is censored. You have to come follow me on these other platforms. So lots of people were funneled into the spheres of influence of these various far-right influences, thanks to algorithms that had been developed, you know, to show people more ads by keeping them watching for longer. So the role of the role of algorithms in the growth of the alternative right, I think, really can't be understated. Yeah. So the next question, uh, my own YouTube channel. So this is this is something I started very soon after the mosque shooting. I'd been watching a lot of content in what has been called BreadTube after Kropotkin's uh, Conquest of Bread, this sort of left-wing intellectual sphere on YouTube where often quite quite highly educated people would be making content about sort of politics and philosophy and in a way that uh, tried to make a lot of these ideas more accessible than they would be in academia. And often there was you know a bit of uh, theatrics to it and things as well. And when I wanted to get information out about the alt-right after the mosque shooting, I thought, well, this could be could be the best way to do it, to reach more people than I would with, you know, a blog or something like that. So over over the past four years, I've I've made a series of video essays on mostly on topics related to the far right, and more recently did a series of interviews, which were in part for the book, but also have been published in full on YouTube. And I think that's really that that channel as what's led to me getting a bit of an audience even though these days I have a much larger audience on Twitter than I have on YouTube and it's what's led to being able to write this book and get this published and get these ideas out to to a lot more people so while I've sort of got the YouTube channel on hiatus at the moment because video content does take a lot of work it's certainly been a been a useful experience and something that you know I may come back to one day I would note though that it does seem to be a lot harder to build an audience doing left-wing content than doing right-wing content. And I don't think that that's, that it's any less appealing to a similar size audience. I think it's the fact that when you're doing left-wing content, you want it to be factual and, you know, entertaining and a bit more um, serious than perhaps some of the the right-wing content. Most right-wing YouTube channels are, you know, man in a car rants into phone at stoplight, you know, they're that sort of genre. So um, they can just produce a lot more content. And, and due to those algorithms that I've talked about, feeding people things that'll give them an emotive response, you can have a lot of success being an angry man ranting into a phone. Whereas if you're wanting to do something a bit more intellectual, um, it's a bit of a harder medium to uh, to succeed in. There is, of course, a third way, which is to be a weirdo tanky with a massive Patreon. One of the things you write in the book is about how the left is just as susceptible to misinformation as the right. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how we can inoculate ourselves against this sort of thing. Yeah. So I think that's, you know, part of the book that might might upset some readers or might cause them to, to question things. I, I think there's a, a few different ways that the left can be susceptible. One is when we've focused too much on populism at the expense of you know political education if we've been happy to go along get a big turnout at a protest by just keeping the politics at the level of you know the people against the elites 
there are a lot of people, I think, who have participated in some of these more alt-right-driven protests, like the Occupation of Parliament Grounds, who years ago might have been part of anti-TPPA marches or even the Occupy movement or um, uh, the MANA movement, which is sort of a left-wing populist movement we had here in New Zealand a few years ago. And I think a lot of people have not developed their politics beyond you know, being the people against the elites. And that makes them very susceptible to, to a kind of right-wing populism, even if they've perhaps in the past thought of themselves as part of the left or if they've at least gone along to arguably left-wing demonstrations and protests. So that's that's one aspect of it. The other one there is people who have not got involved in the alt-right, but maybe have a little bit of an overlap with some of their thinking, particularly around Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think coming out of the, the anti-war movement that emerged uh, in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq, a lot of people on the left developed a worldview that was opposed to American imperialism and saw that as you know the one great evil. And that's led to some on the left now believing that anyone who has opposed American imperialism or by extension, you know, NATO countries as, you know, somehow being someone worthy of support. And so you see this in people supporting uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria or supporting Putin as as an opponent of supposed Western imperialism. And there's a lot of disinformation originating from from the Kremlin that spreads in you know alt right spaces whether it's got there you know through people who are directly part of the Kremlin or whether it's just that um, certain people think that it must be true because it's opposed to the Western mainstream media it's got in there and I hear some people who are on the left but have this rigid opposition to American imperialism that ignores that you know Putin is also an imperialist repeating some of that same disinformation that you're seeing on the alt-right. So I think the solution to that is probably having more of a focus on political education on the left, not just having it be a, you know, how many boots have we got on the ground, how many people have got at this protest, but actually, you know, looking at having a decent analysis of imperialism and what that means in the in the 2020s and, you know, what what different nations are doing and why they're doing it and, you know, not turning a blind eye to human rights abuses by dictators who perhaps the US regime is also opposed to at the moment, even if not for the right reasons, perhaps. So I think having having things like educational YouTube channels like BreadTube is doing or uh, podcasts and, and writings, as well as sort of a, events where people are speaking or where there are workshops, things like that, I think could be a important activity for, for the left to do right now. And not just educating ourselves, but, you know, maybe you'll bring in some other people who otherwise might end up going down a conspiracy rabbit hole and ending up part of the alt-right. There was a a bit of a meme that went around a a few years ago, this idea, you know, it's not my job to educate you on the left. And I think, you know, what we've found is a lot of people who perhaps were looking for that education are now being educated by these conspiracy theory influences and others. And I think if, if the left were to actually focus on doing that political education and, and whatever means, you know, that could make a real positive difference. Byron, you've made reference to going down rabbit holes and certainly in the book and elsewhere, there's uh, stories about individuals who I think especially under lockdown conditions would find themselves spending a whole lot of time online. Do you think part of the problem is that political engagement has become an extremely online activity. Yeah, I think I think that's part of the problem because the the whole online world is not built to facilitate 
political engagement. It's it's really built to sell advertising. And so if you're doing your politics mostly through through social media, you're going to get the algorithms pushing you towards those more more emotive responses. And you know, on on something like Twitter, and that's probably my preferred social media platform, you, you see on there people getting into arguments and, and pylons and, and things and, and most of it's not very productive. It's it's really just you know, this is what people are being pushed to in order to have them spend more time with the with the Twitter app open. So I think there's a there's a bit of a problem with with doing political engagement primarily through social media. While a lot of good can be done through social media, you've got to balance that with I think some of these in person events and, you know, maybe things that are online perhaps still, but not necessarily facilitated through Facebook or Twitter or, or YouTube. Byron, you talk in the book about some of the response you've had in relation to your investigations into the far right. Could you share with us a little bit about uh, what has happened to you and perhaps also what the response from the far right has been to the book? Pretty soon after after I uploaded my first YouTube video, the people that I spoke about in there um, discovered it. You know, I got my first sort of vague threat um, around that time, which was just, a, you know, you know, someone should punch you and we're going to give you a trip to the ER or something like that. And then over time, that started. That sort of thing started to increase. Um, I had people follow me home from an event um, and then share my address online. I got uh, printouts from one of these far-right Facebook pages left in the letterbox. I had um, someone turn up at my workplace, film me. During the, during the parliament occupation, I was uh, getting asked to appear on TV and radio quite a bit. And, you know, every time I'd do that, you know, it'd be followed by a few threats in my inbox, uh, and either email or Twitter or, or whatever. So, you know, it's, there's been, been some real pushback. A lot of, a lot of that harassment and, and threats, some threats more serious than the others, most of them vague enough to not be legally actionable. Things like, you know, wouldn't it be a shame if someone knew you lived at such and such and, you know, wanted to hurt you or that, things like that. Response to the book has been, Amusing. Um, at least, uh, at least three people who are featured in the book have have purchased copies. I've pledged to match what they spend on the book with a donation to uh, the group Refugees and Survivors who do refugee resettlement work. So every time someone in the book purchases a copy, you know, I make sure that you know that goes to help refugee resettlement. I think that's a, a good way to offset, uh, you know, what they're, what they're spending on it. And they're, you know, very angry and occasionally talk about legal action, I, I think they misunderstand that it's not liable to quote people and to quote things that they've said um, at meetings or on YouTube or Facebook or whatever. So um, I don't think any of them are serious about any legal challenges. But, you know, Maybe if they want to try, I guess that could be, could be interesting to watch unfold. Being followed home, uh, having people come to your work, uh, receiving death threats, uh, no one would blame you if you said, uh, you know, sod this for a game of soldiers. Why do you continue? I think there's a, a value in doing this work. And while there are a lot of others doing it, and there's more people, I think, involved in this than there were, you know, four years ago. Something great that has emerged is the Disinformation Project, who are an uh, interdisciplinary group of academics who are studying the disinformation landscape in New Zealand, and I've cited some of their reports in the book. They do a level of work that, you know, activists volunteering their time couldn't do. Um, there are also a number of people now who have been given scholarships to do academic work on 
aspects of the far right uh, and far right radicalization. So they're doing some great work in academia. And, you know, there are anti-fascist groups now in all the major cities here doing great work on the ground. Like um, I mentioned Kyle Chapman organizing a protest against uh, drag queen story time at the at the central library here um that was met with a counter protest from you know anti-fascists who you know had a human wall between the uh far right protest and the and the library where you know people were taking their children to be read to and you know prevented the prevented the far right protesters from going in and causing trouble so there's so much so much happening that i do feel i can pull back a little bit from what i was doing but not pulled to a complete stop because I think you know I've got I've got a role to play in this movement that I think is important. I also keep in mind at all times that I probably well maybe not at this point because I'm so well known and so hated by a few of these figures, but in general as a you know as straight cisgendered white man, I mean I could fade into the background and not be a target of of the far right. But there's a lot of people here who don't have don't have the privilege to just fade into the background and just by their very existence will be will be a target of the far right and i think it's important for people who you know maybe have a bit of privilege to actually be be forming a part of the anti-fascist movement so that's what that's the reason i keep doing it you identify in the book you know a range of issues that is animating the far right but i'm wondering also if you can speak about some of the things that may either divide or create uh, certain problems for coordination. And I'm thinking especially about uh, issues to do with race and indigeneity. H- how do those things play out? Yeah, so, so race is a, you know, a major <laughs> dividing line on the far right. There are, there are the, you know, explicitly white supremacist groups like Action Zealandia who, you know, want to create a, a white ethno state. Then there are, you know, other, much broader groups who, you know, don't really mind what your race is or what your ethnicity is as long as you're committed to, you know, Western civilization. Someone I talk about in the book a fair bit is uh, Elliot Ekelay, who was the co-leader, uh, deputy leader of the New Conservative Party for most of the time I was researching the far right. And he's a, a Polynesian man, but he talks about Western civilization being the, the greatest civilization there is and Western culture being superior to other cultures and, and that sort of thing. So there's those groups there. There's also been a bit of an influence of sovereign citizen ideas among Maori communities here, as I think they have among indigenous communities in Australia as well, to some extent. And so that's meant that there is a, a chunk of this conspiracy theory movement who are uh, who are Maori, and there are others who may have got into the the alt right through adjacent evangelical churches, and might be largely for Maori and Polynesian. And there end up being some clashes there because. Some of the more white right it isn't isn't so keen on that. Even if they agree on a lot, there's um, there was a lot of criticism of Advanced New Zealand, whose co-leader was a uh, uh, Maori uh, uh, Christian pastor, Billy Tikahika, and he was seen by others on the far right as possibly being some sort of Maori separatist or, or whatever, because his movement emerged sort of parallel to you know the largely Pakeha movement that already existed with uh, groups like the New Conservatives, and they were you know, competing for similar parts of the electorate. So I think, yeah, race is, is a, a divide there, and it's going to prevent them all from from uniting sort of into one organization, because I think if they did that, you know, some people would get up and leave because they wouldn't want to be involved with some of the others. Uh, another big problem is just that there are so many big egos in this space. You know, everybody wants to be the Fuhrer. I mean, they're 
some of the small sort of alt-right or right-wing populist parties did try and attempt to merge together over the during the 2020 election and have made attempts at that again this year. And it always falls apart because they can never agree who gets to be the leader and who gets to have their party name remain and their branding. So it means that, you know, the populist right is getting around 3% of the vote, which wouldn't be enough to get them to parliament, but might get them a platform on debate stages and things. But that 3% of the vote is divided between five different parties. So, which I guess is, is lucky for everyone else because it means that all of them are, all of them are quite marginal. Byron, just finally, I was wondering what you see as the emerging threats in the extremism landscape in Aotearoa. There is still a risk of violence. The parliament protest last year ended in some quite violent clashes between protesters and police. That was largely violence carried out not by known names who I talk about in the book, but by people who were a bit more marginalised but were influenced by these people. And, you know, there's been some criticism, I think, even from within that movement, that all the leaders kind of up and disappeared, leaving uh, leaving their followers to be the ones bearing the brunt of police shutting down the camp and being arrested and charged and so forth, while, while the people encouraging that violence, you know, have just been able to carry on with their lives. I think there's a, there's a risk of some sort of some sort of terror attack happening again or, or, or probably not something on the scale of what we saw in 2019 but some more lower level violence like a politician or a journalism being being a, a journalist being attacked and it won't happen by someone whose name uh, is well known or someone who I've named in the book it would happen from you know one of the followers of these people who may be you know a bit more a bit more marginalized and you know maybe not maybe not really assessing the risk of doing something like that and it angers me that you know the people pushing these ideas are probably not going to be arrested for encouraging someone to do that, um, but you know somebody somebody who's become susceptible to this way of thinking, you know, could could end up doing something violent. The um, the other thing I I should mention, which I end, end the book with, is that what we've seen with the pandemic here is a much smaller scale of what we're probably going to see with uh, the impact of climate change becoming more pronounced. You know, the pandemic was a significant social change and economic change and happened against a background of, you know, quite significant and quite visible wealth inequality. And with climate change, we're going to see even more of that. And the other other thing that we're going to see is people moving, people displaced by extreme weather events and conflicts related to extreme weather events. And many of those people are going to start crossing borders. So when we start to see... You know, climate refugees on a much larger scale than you know the refugee crisis of 2015, which has really influenced particularly the European far right. I think there's a real risk there of growing xenophobia, growing climate change conspiracy theory, tying it in with these other conspiracy theories like the Great Replacement and so forth, and potentially influencing influencing a new far right movement that could be bigger than what we're seeing today. Well, Byron, what a cheery note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us. The book is Fear, New Zealand's Hostile Underworld of Extremists. People can find you on Twitter at Byron C. Clark or even on Mastodon at Byron C. Clark at mastodon.social. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Well, Andy, that's our show. Just before we go, I understand you have some details of an event happening this Saturday. 
Yes, Cam, on Saturday at 11 o'clock, uh, anti-fascists will be gathering in order to protest an event compared by uh, someone called Posey Parker, who is an anti-trans activist who's currently conducting a tour of Australia. So if you'd like to get on down, I'm sure you'll find details online, but that's Saturday at 11 outside Palm. See you later. See ya. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the third Newport Jazz Festival. 50 bands, multiple venues and three days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians, the 21st to the 23rd of April. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Get your tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office, Market Street, Newport or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au. Let's get the party started at the friendliest festival in the West, Newport Jazz Festival, a 3CR supporter. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up, be heard, call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter.